Welcome to Almost Here, Around the Corner of Future Technology Podcasts with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies, ways to transform our lives for better or worse, are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used, or just around the corner, from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hi, this is Richard Jacobs with Future Tech Podcast, and my guest today is Radia Parman. And as we discussed um, previously before I started the recording, Radia has a lot of credentials. She's been around um, working with blockchain uh, essentially uh, for a long time. So instead of me giving a skewed or you know, possibly not uh, best light introduction, I'm going to let her do it. So Radia, thank you for coming. How are you doing? Oh, fine. Yeah. So yeah, if you would, for listeners, um, before we get into the topic, would you give them you know, a little bit about your background and, and what you do and who you are? Okay. Well, I um, have been designing network protocols for a long time. So um, I've done spanning tree that changed Ethernet from being a single link into fairly large networks. Um, I did routing protocols that enable a network to uh, self-configure and be really robust. Uh, Early routing protocols were very, very fragile and I made them much easier to manage and robust and um, um, yeah, and scalable. Uh, okay. The particular blockchain stuff um, really came out of um, one of the chapters of my book, um, which uh, I, I have two textbooks. One's on layers two and three of networking, and the other is on network security and cryptography, and I do have co-authors on that. Um, So when I was doing a chapter for the third edition, which is not yet out, still probably a couple years away, um, I was researching electronic money and really, uh, you know, at that point, analyzed uh, what blockchain really is. Let's see. And and currently, I am a fellow at um, Dell EMC. Interesting. So, yeah, we're going to have an interesting conversation today for listeners because everyone's so rah-rah blockchain and thinks that, you know, the whole world's going to change and blockchain's going to take over the world. And maybe it is. But we're going to talk about the other side of blockchain, you know, that it has its limitations for sure. It's not a panacea for all the world's issues. Um, So that's what I want to discuss with you today because of your background. And I think you'll bring like a really interesting perspective to it. Okay. Yes, I agree. Um, The hype is astonishing. Um, it's not a well-defined term at all. It's just sort of a buzzword that either people enthusiastically just sort of repeat what they're hearing, or they feel sort of traumatized because they don't exactly know what blockchain is. And then people say, oh, well, it's distributed ledger technology. And then again, they're not exactly sure what does distributed mean? What is uh, a ledger? Um, And with the hype, um, which are literally things like it is the most important contribution to um, computing since the invention of the Internet. Um, And also, there are all sorts of articles about how it's going to be applied to uh, change our lives in terms of health care and even securing our nuclear arsenal. So I would like to concentrate instead on what exactly is it? 
because that, yeah, tell, that is something that's hard to yeah, get any information the, about. Yeah, if you would define it as you see it, and then we'll talk about, you know, what are the misconceptions people have about its definition and uses and all that. But yeah, tell me what what is blockchain to you, and how is that different from what you're hearing people uh, parrot out there about? Right. Well, it's very hard to define a uh, buzzword, which is a moving target. Um, people sort of want to believe that the word is whatever they want it to believe um, now or in the future. So it's just this umbrella term that when applied sufficiently generally, it means any combination of computers, um, networking, uh, crypto, and storage, which with that definition, I've been doing blockchain my entire life, <laughs> as have most of us. Um, so I like to start with where the term started, which was in Bitcoin. Um, Bitcoin, the technology that powers Bitcoin. And so by analyzing and describing that, uh, then we can talk about what what the variants are. So um, Bitcoin... Um, the concept was, uh, the, the goal of the concept was let's not trust any big organizations like banks or governments. So there will right. be no trusted entities whose identities are known. Um, and with that assumption, it led to a design which really is very, very different than anything you know I had ever seen before. So uh, trust is given to kind of a community of anonymous miners where anyone can be a miner. You can just download the software or you could buy a special mining rig that can do it um, so much faster than uh, that software doesn't really have a chance. So right. the um, concept, um, well, why is it called blockchain? Well, the format of the data is a chain of blocks where um, the, the algorithms are structured such that the community of miners will add another block to the chain about every 10 minutes. Now, what a block is, is it's transactions that have not yet been recorded that are valid, and the block has a hash that's extremely difficult to compute. Um, and it has to be extremely difficult to compute or else um, th that's the only security assumption is that the um, hash is so difficult to compute that nobody except for the community of miners can manage to put together more compute power than the community of miners has. So, you know, sort of the assumption is they've cornered the world market on compute. Now, how can you adjust how difficult it is to have a hash? Well, um, if you look at sort of cryptographic hash technology, it's almost like a random number where if you give it an input, it looks like you just flipped a bunch of coins to get a random, um, random hash for that input. So the probability with a particular um, random input that the output will have the top bit be zero is a half. Um, the probability that the top uh, 10 bits will be zero is one in two to the 10th. So 
So if you um, if they want the uh, community to come out with a hash every 10 minutes, then if it takes too long, they'll make the hash easier by um, right, making right. the number of leading zeros um, fewer, right. which means it'll be easier to find one. And if hashes are found um, more often, then they'll make the hash harder by making the um, um, maximum value of the hash um, the smaller. <laughs> I, I might have the small, smaller and larger uh, backwards here. But at any rate, currently, the hash has to have 70 leading zeros. That's two to the 70th. So in order to find a hash, you take a bunch of transactions, you take a random number, then you hash what what you have, and you hope that the top 70 bits are going to be zero. And if they're not, you right. try a different random number, and you keep trying about one and two to the 70th times. So if you happen to be the um, lucky miner that finds a hash first, then you'll re be rewarded with a certain number of bitcoins um, pl uh, for finding the hash, plus right. any transaction fees that uh, people choose to put into their transactions. So this is kind of a very uh, profound thing that people should understand. With traditional cryptography, there are people who are authorized to create a um, an integrity check. And those people have some sort of secret that enables them to very efficiently uh, find a hash, um, or no, I mean, find a signature um, to compute the signature. And mathematically, they make it infeasible to forge a signature if you're not one of the authorized uh, people who are allowed to create it. So this is traditionally with public key technology, where the authorized guys have private keys that nobody knows, but public keys that enable them to verify a signature. And with um, good cryptography, not only is there an enormous gap between the compute needed to create a signature and the compute needed to forge a signature, but by making the key longer, you can make the gap between the authorized guys and the forgers even bigger. So um, to put that into perspective, with RSA, uh, to do with a 1,000-bit RSA key, it takes about a millisecond on a standard CPU in order to create a signature, and it would take the entire uh, compute capacity of the um, current Bitcoin mining community about an hour in order to break it and be able to forge one. But if you made the key twice as long, uh, like a 2,000-bit RSA key, it would only okay. take six milliseconds to create a signature. That's six times longer. But it would take the entire Bitcoin um, mining community a million years to, uh, to break it. So that... So what's um, the, um, what's yeah, the current implication one. of that is Bitcoins. Let's let's talk about Bitcoin specifically. Is the Bitcoin blockchains or protocol security too weak right now in your eyes? What's the uh, bottom line of what you're saying? It's both too weak and too inefficient. 
Um, to have to live with a um, signature that is equally difficult to compute as to forge is, I think, sort of a a very big hurdle in um, in this technology. That it would be so much better done with traditional cryptography, where there are authorized known entities with secrets, so that you can make it extremely efficient uh, to create it if you're authorized to, and um, absolutely mind-bogglingly impossible to forge. Okay. So how much of a danger do you think there is right now? You know, they talk about 51% attacks and, you know, the current uh, total hash rate, as I understand it, of the Bitcoin network is like almost three exahashes. I don't know what that's two to the, I don't remember, but um, how dangerous or insecure in your opinion is the current uh, Bitcoin protocol? Well, certainly any nation state, if they wanted to, could put together enough compute capacity to cripple it. Um, but there's also kind of a weird thing that the assumption is that uh, Bitcoin is extremely democratic. There's nobody in charge. It's just the um, wisdom and the good intentions of the mining community. But every so often something happens that requires somebody to make a decision. So in the case of Bitcoin, there was some sort of um, incompatibility in software such that um, two different versions did not recognize each other's uh, blocks as valid. And so then a decision had to be made because that caused the blockchain to fork into two um, forks, one that looked valid to um, one set of guys and one that looked valid to the other set of guys. Um, actually, it was one looked invalid to one. The other one um, was valid, but the um, guys in that fork were ahead of it computationally. But at any rate, um, somebody made a decision that they should roll back the uh, ledger to when to before the fork happened and to have everybody agree on running one of the versions. So when you do, when you make a decision like that, it means that anyone who has mined um, bitcoins in the fork that was chosen by whoever to lose, they lose their money and any transactions that were in there are no longer in the ledger. So if you... Um, were the payer in one of those, you're actually kind of free to respend. Um, the double spend problem, okay. Yeah. How long um, with the current network as it is, um, if a fork develops, how long do you think it'll be before the network knows, the nodes know, and how do you think uh, Bitcoin network will react to it? And what can they do to stop a fork or are they just doomed at that point and that's it? Well, there's no absolute number as to when a fork will resolve. Um, there's always temporary forks because information doesn't propagate around the Internet instantaneously. Um, the way information propagates is through what I call a gossip network, 
where each of the nodes is configured with the addresses of some set of other nodes. So to have something propagate, assuming there's lots and lots of loops, this will be very um, expensive as sort of exponentially many copies of the thing is, is um, um, spawned as things loop around. But, uh, um, yeah, actually, uh, no one will um, um, send it twice, so at least it's not uh, – sorry about the exponential. It's more like n squared. But um, if there are certain key nodes in the middle of this gossip network that happen to be down, the gossip network could be partitioned because uh, the only sure. way uh, – the only path between A and B might be through C. And um, if C were down, then there might be an entire partition, in which case this partition could last arbitrarily long, days, weeks, you know, until somebody notices and configures more connectivity or brings up the nodes that are down. Um, there was another... So um, yeah, go what on. Would be a, so a nation state could, um, I guess, produce a denial of service attack on certain nodes or certain clusters. And then simultaneously, um, I don't know what you'd call it, but, um, you know, fake transactions or attack the network. You know, I guess it would be a multi-pronged attack, but it sounds like a multi-pronged attack is uh, is doable, very doable, especially by a nation state with their capability. And it would um, fork the network and cause problems for quite a long time, possibly. Right. So um, certainly an easy attack would be if some set of miners had more than half of the compute power, and they decided that they wanted to um, discriminate against certain transactions. So they just refused to ever record those. That would be an easy thing to do. Or you could buy a house, you know, with an awful lot of money, and then get together with a bunch of, um, you know, in, in this evil community, and back up the ledger to... Um, to before you bought the house so that you, that transaction is no longer recorded and you could respend the money some other way. Okay. Um, I mean, we can go into various attack vectors. I don't know if we should continue in that vein, or probably it sounds like um, you'd rather talk more about blockchain in general and, uh, again, the misconceptions around it and the weaknesses of it. You know, Or right. would you rather stick with Bitcoin protocol and... Uh, you know, attack vectors. What do you think would be more instructive for listeners? Well, um, let's also start with how expensive it is to be doing all of this hashing. So the um, the estimate, it's very hard to know how much electricity is being used, but it seems um, it, by computing an estimate uh, with different assumptions and all that, all the, um, all the estimates I've seen come out to be about the same, which is that it's about equal to a nuclear power plant. Um, the other thing about this technology is that it requires the complete history to be kept in full at lots and lots of nodes. Um, now, there's a few reasons why it has to be uh, the complete history, um, as opposed to something like a database where you have... Um, um, different accounts and you could show the balances in all the accounts and you just update that particular thing. Um, here is something where you need to see every Bitcoin that was ever uh, spent in the history. And so, um, yeah, currently the 
um, database is about 100 gigabytes, and it's stored in tens of thousands of places. So, um, you know, that's kind of a serious issue. Um, Another reason you need to have all of the um, history is that if you are paid something, um, so a transaction looks like public key A pays public key B a certain amount, um, because of um, some transaction in the history with a certain hash, then B, in order to make sure that this is he's validly going to be paid, has to go through the ledger to find the transaction in which A was actually uh, paid that amount. And then he has to go through every transaction since then to make sure that A hasn't spent that money with somebody else. Yeah, the network, I mean, is supposed to do that. And, you know, I, I guess the 10-minute limit uh, right now seems to be enough. I mean, I know there's scaling issues, but for now it seems like the, um, you know, if you don't have a light node, but you have a full one, um, it can check the 100 gigabytes, as you say, of uh, of data pretty rapidly, right? I guess so. But the, um, this is um, why um, the transaction has to be kept in its entirety, at least at the full nodes. So if a, yeah, um, a as you said, here would be um, a good uh, here would be a good thing. Based on your experience and your knowledge, what are some suggestions you have? You've already given one. You know, increase the uh, the number of digits in the uh, in the key to upgrade the security. Um, what are maybe three or four ideas that you have with your vast knowledge base on how to improve, for instance, the the Bitcoin protocol to make it just more more usable, maybe faster or safer, et cetera. Well, with the assumption that you want um, no known entities involved, it sort of leads to that design. So there may or may not be um, a use case for a currency that, um, you know, that nobody controls. It sounds good. Um, I think the killer app for it is paying ransomware. (laughs) You know, um, a large company, for instance, or even an individual who's a citizen of a country still has to obey those laws. So if the government um, insists that you pay taxes when you sell something, um, you still have to pay taxes even though uh, you're using uh, Bitcoin and it might make it harder for um, there to be a money trail. You're still legally obligated to do that. Um, and certainly a big company that's not allowed to send money to um, across certain uh, borders and so forth, even if Bitcoin kind of lets them get away with it for um, now, they're still breaking the law and can be prosecuted. And it, it probably wouldn't be that hard to um, um, trace a money trail to do that. So, um, yeah, that... that um, uh, um, that sort of explains sort of the fundamental reason why the design is the way that it is for Bitcoin. But for most other applications that people are talking about, a much more sensible design would be to have um, things, known organizations at the center of it that um, that do have public keys and can sign things with private keys, in which case you can make it just trivially efficient and 
um, you know, mind-bogglingly more um, um, infeasible for anyone to forge things. Uh, another reason to have sort of known entities in the middle is consider something like eBay well, um, or, or Amazon. Um, yes, you can reach you know, zillions of um, previously unknown merchants and you can pay them money, but by having this big organization in the middle, um, they can mediate disputes. So for instance, with Bitcoin, suppose I paid you money, um, but you never shipped the merchandise. Who do I complain to? Whereas with um, yeah. Amazon, you know, for electronic commerce, it seems much more um, applicable to the technology to have some sort of um, adult supervision, some sort of well-known um, um, entity that can be held accountable and that you can go to for um, mediating disputes. Yeah, that's true. I mean, escrow maybe is a possible solution, but you're right. I mean, it's those kind of transactions, right? They require uh, trusted third parties if you want escrow, if you want, um, you know, to be able to take action if someone doesn't pay you or, you know, doesn't send you items, that kind of thing. That's true. That's definitely right. true. So, um, then um, we, um, we get to, quote, private blockchains, unquote. So what I was talking about was sort of Bitcoin, where the assumption is that there'll be tens of thousands of anonymous um, entities that are all going to somehow agree on what the history is, um, which led to that particular design. Right. If you go to what a private blockchain is, where, where one company does blockchain as a service, then why is it being called blockchain? You know, they might have multiple nodes, but they're all, or, um, they're all managed by the same organization. So you could have a far more simpler design. Um, so what I tend to tell people when they're trying to um, uh, think of solutions is that first you should figure out what the problem is that you're solving. You know, what are the assumptions that you're um, making? What are your goals? And then look at various technologies. Um, you shouldn't just be like so enthusiastic about one thing that you say, can we ap uh, apply this to problem A? Can we apply it to problem B? And then just sort of modify it in all sorts of ways that, um, you know, who knows what you will wind up with afterwards. But unless you carefully consider various options and design a solution specifically for the problem you're solving, I suspect you won't actually have the optimal solution. That makes sense. So, so what do you think is going to happen with, uh, let's talk about Bitcoin again. You know, do you think it's going to scale to the point where it becomes um, used uh, everywhere? You know, do you think you'll be able to go to your coffee shop and pay for your latte in Bitcoin and, you know, millions of people will use it and it'll take over fiat currency? Or what do you think is going to happen with it? And what, you know, will it just be crushed at some point? What's your opinion? Well, it's sort of a cute thing, a cute, trendy thing to try. But why would I, as an individual, want to use it rather than a credit card or cash? And I really don't know. <laughs> um, it's certainly a lot less safe. 
um, I do not keep all of my money in a um, mattress at home because I assume that banks are better able to protect my money than I am. Um, if I decide to use Bitcoin, then I will have some data on my smartphone, let's say, that will yeah. be the equivalent of cash. If I lose that information um, without having backed it up properly, the money is just plain gone. If somebody right. breaks into my smartphone and steals the information, then they can spend the money before I do, right. and they can steal the money. So, um, you know, what what incentive might there be? Now, one incentive is that people say, well, the greedy banks take 3% um, transaction fees on all the credit card purchases. And right. yeah, um, and currently, if you look at the uh, transaction fees, which are voluntary in Bitcoin, um, most transactions don't have any um, transaction fee, and yet they do get put into the ledger. But the assumption on um, if one of the design things that at, from the very beginning, for some reason, was that there should be a finite amount of Bitcoins that ever get generated. So right. when it started, a miner that got a, um, uh, that found a block with the right hash would get 50 Bitcoins. And then about four years later, it halved to 25. And then four years later, it got halved again. So currently it's 12 and a half. So right. soon- exactly the amount of reward for the miner is going to be negligibly small and they'll have to make up all of their money with transaction fees. Now, if you look at the amount that they're getting paid right now, um, it's about $8 per transaction if you take the, the block reward and the transaction fees. So ultimately, um, they're still going to be using the same amount of electricity and uh, electricity barely covers what the reward is. So the um, transaction fee per transaction uh, will have to average $8. So that's going to wind up being a lot more than um, the 3% off the top that banks uh, charge uh, for most transactions. Uh, that's true. Yeah, I, I, I only focused on the, um, the Bitcoin reward. And I thought, okay, well, if it goes down and keeps having the, um, you know, the price of Bitcoin must go up. So that's a good, you know, positive pressure on it. But you're right, the transaction fees, um, they can obviously be a percent of the transaction. So if the price of Bitcoin rises, the, you know, the percentage will mean more money to the, um, you know, to the miners. But if you look at it in terms of fiat versus Bitcoin, uh, as they diverge, as Bitcoin gets more and more valuable, so the price goes higher and higher. Um, even if a transaction is uh, half a percent, but that represents uh, $30, it's going to be a lot for people. So I see what you're saying. Yeah, there could be a rule put in place that would require a block to be filled or at least a certain percentage of it to be filled, you know, as the block size scales, for instance. But you're right, you may run into that limit of uh, electricity per, per transaction. I mean, things are getting more efficient. You know, they have ASICs now instead of... Uh, you know, CPUs, GPUs, FPGAs doing it. Um, there's ASIC boost, which is, you know, a new thing that may help. But you're right, as more people, uh, it, it'll be interesting to see how all these things play out. But Right, so an interesting rule of saying that the block must be filled 
Well, what happens at 3 o'clock at night when there's sort of like a lull in transactions? Do you then make it, um, you know, so that it takes hours before the block is filled? Um, the, the block has to be able to have enough capacity so that when um, during the most active um, time, all the transactions will fit. And so if there's a big gap, like a factor of 10, between really active times and uh, times when it isn't active, then the gap between transactions, uh, between blocks, would have to be 10 times bigger during the um, quiet times. Well, you know, that's funny. Right now, um, things are slowed down because the network can't handle transactions fast enough. You know, as usage grows and as more and more transactions, you know, I don't know what the numbers are, but I think it's one or two per second. And I don't know what the credit card companies process. I, I forget, but let's say it's 10,000 a second or 100,000 a second. If the Bitcoin transaction velocity grows to, you know, 10,000 a second and it's able to handle it, even lulls, you know, maybe the block size decreases at night, but there's still enough transactions to make it worthwhile. I mean, again, I, I guess there's a lot of things to consider, and it sounds like maybe people aren't considering them. It sounds like all the things you're saying, um, maybe they are being considered. I don't know. But I like that you have this this interesting perspective I haven't heard on things that need to be thought out that we may, you know, where we may run into problems. Yes. Whenever I sort of get, um, you know, drowned in hype and ill-defined um, buzzwords, that's when I start saying, hey, wait a minute, <laughs> you know, let's think about this. So I'm not saying that I have the absolute truth by any means, but these are questions that, um people should should raise they shouldn't just accept something as truth because they hear it so often so are you really passionate about uh, this stuff i mean why don't how come you don't want to make your voice a big one in the um in the blockchain community if you want to call it that are you just busy with your own work and this is like a curiosity to you or do you feel passionate about it and you do you want to speak to the community uh well i'm certainly passionate about um, education and getting people to think critically. This particular topic is not something that I you know, particularly felt like I want to do research in, unless what you're saying is, I mean, yes, I care about um, protocols and mm -hmm. uh, security and authentication and manageability and usability and all of these sorts of things. And I would certainly um, consider blockchain, whatever it is, as one of the possible solutions. I wouldn't just say, um, you know, that, that it has no use, but I definitely don't exactly know what it is anymore if it, uh, yeah. you know, changes very much. Um, so one um, an example is that um, people are saying, well, What's really great is you have a ledger that cannot ever be changed. Right, immutable, yeah. Right, okay. So that sounds good, um, but anything can be changed. It's just that the integrity check means that if anyone changes it, you'll be able to detect that it um, was changed. So in that case, I would prefer something like a digital signature where it's so much more efficient to compute and absolutely infeasible to um, forge. 
But there's an interesting um, technology that we've kind of lost. In the old days, we did backups on mag tapes, and they were stored off the network, and no one could touch them. And um, if everything just went completely bananas, you could go retrieve your mag tape and start where you were from when the backup occurred. These days, we tend to, uh, like in public clouds, all of the data is live, um, including the backups. So if there were some sort of malicious um, system administrator, they could delete all the copies. Or if your own software, if you're a customer, your own software went crazy and started corrupting your data, all of your copies of the data would also be corrupted. So there are backup technologies that store your data someplace else in a different cloud um, with different authorized parties. But people have to have the discipline to understand this uh, concept that, um, you know, even a digital signature is not going to help you. You can, um, um, if you don't have this totally independent kind of uh, backup mechanism, because the most you'll be able to do is say, yep, that data is bad. Um, Yeah. I don't believe that blockchain sort of guarantees that the data will be there, except for this notion that, well, if you keep 10,000 copies of it across the net, then, um, you know, then if it's corrupted, uh, if someone tries to corrupt some of them by creating an alternate ledger, somebody will have stored um, the previous version. But then do you want all data to have uh, 10,000 copies? Uh, Public clouds tend to keep six copies. You know, what is the right number of copies? So what I would implore the world to think about is having some means to have uh, extremely independent backups uh, controlled by different organizations that cannot be, you know, that are not authorized to um, to be modified, that backup services that guarantee that they're never going to um, modify or delete for at least for some amount of time the information that you have backed up. Interesting. The cool thing is I could ask you about, I mean, dozens of more things because you have so much knowledge, which is great, and I love your perspective. Um, in the interest of time, would it be okay if I ask you about one more element of this? And I want to talk about um, anonymous versus pseudonymous versus uh, truly versus known versus 100% transparent. And I wanted to ask you about uh, the Bitcoin protocol and maybe some other altcoins like Monero or Zcash and zero knowledge proofs and ring signatures. And, you know, just your opinion on can any of these uh, currencies survive? Can they be truly anonymous or are they more transparent than everyone would think and maybe even ironically, more transparent than our current fiat system. Well, yeah, anonymity, um, it's not really anonymous. There's so much information that can be mined from looking at the ledger. And that actually is um, one of the ways that people can estimate how much money is paid in ransomware by looking at the ledger. Um, So... You can change your public key on every single transaction, um, but um, there are certainly ways of figuring out 
um, in a lot of cases who what's who somebody is. So um, if there's um, you're paying your mortgage every month, even if right. you change your public key each time, that you know the amount and whatever will be uh, pretty clear. Um, when A pays B, pays C, pays D, again, with data mining and sort of clever heuristics, you can get an awful lot of information from all of that. Now, a technology mm. that really would have guaranteed a- anonymity was um, an extremely different from this thing that was um, invented by Chaum, and it was called eCash, which um, had a bank that was at the center of it. Um, where you could ask, you could pay it a certain amount of money and it would give you a certain amount of um, this electronic cash that it had no idea which coins went with which person. It it was sort of cryptographically guaranteed that there was no way that the bank could tell um, which coins it gave to which people. I mean, through super slick, adorable uh, cryptography. Um, And then you could spend the coins, and then whoever received the coins would then have to go to the bank and deposit it, but they wouldn't have to divulge where they got the coins from. And then they could take out new coins that were anonymous. So that gives you some amount of anonymity. Um, Is that like a coin mixing that they have today? I'm not sure what you mean by coin mixing, but I suspect... Not the the actual technology. There was this thing called, or there is this thing called blind signatures, where um, I can ask you to sign something for me, but I can encrypt it so that you don't know what you're signing. So the way that it actually worked is that um, if I withdrew some, you know, a, a coin's worth of money from from your bank. I would then create a coin myself with a random serial number um, that hopefully didn't conflict with anyone else's because it would be like a huge random number. And then I would encrypt this and ask you to sign it. So given that it's encrypted, you would have no idea what it is that you're signing, but um, you would also only be willing to sign one thing for me because I had only um, withdrawn one coin uh, worth from my account. So now I, then I decrypt it uh, through magic cryptography. (laughs) Um, And so I now have a coin, which is um, something with a serial number I created, signed by the bank's public key. And the bank has no idea which serial number I chose. And then when I uh, pay somebody, they can see that the coin is valid uh, because they see the bank signature Um, They don't actually know it's valid until they go to the bank to make sure that they are the first person to receive that serial number, because otherwise I could spend it a billion times. Um, So the first guy who registers the spent coin with the bank, uh, the bank records that serial number, and, um, um, and then that serial number can't be used again. So that gave, I think, a much more stronger anonymity guarantee than the uh, Bitcoin thing does, even though Bitcoin doesn't have any identities. It just has public keys. Interesting. Okay. Um, last question, because I know, you know, we've, we've gone pretty long, but again, I love talking to you. It's great. There's so much good stuff. Do you think Bitcoin can survive 
um, it can only survive by becoming a lot closer or a lot more regulated or, you know, closer to how fiat is. Um, again, more regulated, more transparent. Is it going to have to morph into something that a lot of, let's say, libertarians and privacy advocates don't want in order to survive? What do you think it needs to happen for it to scale and grow? Or do you think it just won't? Well, I think if you take out the um, the basic tenets of it, it becomes so different that is it really the same thing? Um, so you could say, well, let's um, say we want to have actual banks in there and we want to, uh, you know, at, at that point you could say, let's back up to what we had uh, five years ago or, or what we have with traditional banking and that will allow blockchain to survive. It, it's no longer blockchain. So I think it will, um, these things will continue on um, for the purposes that they're doing. And as a matter of fact, the advice uh, that um, companies are given is that you should um, hoard some amount of Bitcoin. So in case you ever have um, a ransomware attack, you'll be able to pay uh, because it's not that easy necessarily to gather enough Bitcoin all at once. Um, but um, yeah, so I think it'll still be kind of fun uh, to, to use. But what I find a little frightening is the notion that it's going to be a panacea for all sorts of applications. Um, most applications um, do want to have known entities at the heart. And if you're going to do that, then I think there's far more efficient and secure technologies. Okay. Well, great. So, Radia, I mean, thank you so much. You know, again, the people may say, uh, you know, you're a naysayer and all that, but it's important to have perspectives on both sides and not just hear the, the cheering, you know, hear the, you know, hey, there's things we got to look at if, if we want Bitcoin to work possibly. So, and other, you know, cryptocurrencies and Ethereum, smart contracts, et cetera. We didn't even get into that, but <laughs> I know there's lots of issues. So thanks again for being on the podcast. Any, any last thing I should have asked you that I left out that you want to talk about, or do you feel like we covered a, a lot of good stuff? I think we covered a lot of stuff. Okay. Well, you know, I just want to thank you for being on the podcast and, uh, and that's it. Thanks so much for coming. Okay. Thank you. Okay. You've been listening to almost here around the corner of future technology podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, both to review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.